Welcome to Different Aspects Podcast. This is a podcast featuring the interactions of women and gender diverse folks with the outdoors. I'm your host, Clancy Sinlinger, coming to you from Northern BC on the traditional territory of the Simshan people. I'm really stoked that I got to do my first interview with my friend, colleague, and ski partner, Michaela Pye. Michaela is an ultra runner, race director, and an aspiring ski guide. We sat down in my kitchen and we talked about the backcountry ski culture in Michaela's home province of Newfoundland, backcountry decision making, and exploring the north on skis. There's like no greater freedom than a ski traverse and like having everything on your back and just going out and knowing that everything that you do on that traverse is under your own power. Like it'll always be, I think the thing I love most. Hi, my name is Michaela Pye. My pronouns are she, her. My home mountain is Shames Mountain. Uh, where I'm recreating in Shimshan and Kitsikalem traditional territory. Yeah, so I guess I came to Terrace two years ago now. Yeah, two years. Um, kind of just wanted to come out west with pretty changing winters um, in Newfoundland and on the East Coast. Um, and I was pretty excited about the idea of it being... I just saw some articles about how much snow Terrace gets, um, and I said, I'll come out for the winter, uh, and then I was here for like three weeks before I realized I probably wouldn't be leaving uh, anytime soon, and yeah, then fast forward a year or two later, and I don't see myself leaving Terrace, <laughs> at least as a home base <laughs> for quite some time, but I guess home base as well, too. So I understand you had uh, a few options when you decided to come out west. Um, and Terrace, for those who don't know, is located about 17 hours north of Vancouver, um, of anything really. So uh, what, like, what was it that drew you to this place over the Rockies or a different area that, you know, gets a little more recognition? I guess for me, like, I really like to be in places where it feels more expedition-y maybe in the everyday so terrace for me while a lot of local people come out in a lot of the terrain that I ski every day um, it's still very unskied compared to lots of places and there's still lots of room for um, trying to get into new terrain and and not having all the beta and just like learning how to push into your own way of doing things so for me that was pretty important when coming to terrace I did have some opportunities in the Rockies when I came out to ski patrol down there, which in theory might have been <laughs> a more direct line to some of the avalanche work I want to do. But at a certain point, you have to like weigh what really matters to you, which just the pristine wilderness of, of Terrace is unparalleled. There's like nothing from here um, up to Alaska, hardly. It's just kind of wilderness, which is really important to me. and uh, Kind of, I guess, why. I still love Terrace and why I'm here. 
Growing up in Newfoundland, that's not a, a ski background you hear from a lot of people. Do you want to talk a little bit about growing up there? Yeah. Um, so I would say like most of my um, childhood was spent outdoors, but like not at all in the way that I do it now. Um, my dad is a big snowmobiler and um, hunter and that sort of thing. So basically every single time we would do outdoor sports, it would be on a motorized vehicle, <laughs> which is which is really funny uh, considering what I do now, which is like almost nothing is on a motorized vehicle. My earliest moment of being in awe in the outdoors, I was probably was quite young because the memory is pretty broken, but it was like five or six. Um, and my grandfather had this fishing dory and we used to go cod jigging called Newfoundland which is just cod fishing but with a jigging reel instead of a fishing rod and uh, we were out in this dory and a pot of orcas which is not really common in the bay that we were fishing in so I had never seen them before had come into the bay and they were barely close to the boat not close enough to like make us really wary but it was just like my first experience seeing something probably that big that wasn't a vehicle <laughs> or something and I just remember it was like the coolest day ever for me, just being able to see those animals out in the ocean. And um, I just wanted to go fishing every weekend that summer after that. But it probably wasn't until I got a really random opportunity because I was kind of like an indoorsy teenager, but I had decent French when I was in high school. So I got this really unique opportunity to go to Grossmore National Park and work in their visitor services. And when I was there, I met tons of really extraordinary people who were really into like uh, hiking and backpacking and sea kayaking, who were like very unpretentious about helping you get into it a little bit more. I think just that like first year of, of really getting out as a teenager by myself, doing my own exploration on trails and mountains in Gross Morn was really formative for me. It was like a thing that nobody was making me do. It was like something I took upon myself and that I had these really awesome people and, and mentors to like help me get into it. So I would say that how I ended up where I am has a lot to do with that first summer there and the summers that followed. So those foundational um, orienteering skills and navigating skills, kind of first aid, did that all come about from working in Gross Morn and tail guiding? I did the Duke of Edinburgh program through high school. One of the things about being in Newfoundland is if you're a keen person who really wants to expand your horizons, you kind of have to seek it out. And that was one of the venues you could do it. So I, I did a, some navigation courses and we did some like long backpacking courses as, in a structured environment, kind of in my last year of high school and second last year of high school. And so that program really gave me a lot of those fundamentals. I guess as a result of working in Grossmorn, I was like exposed to a lot of really interesting people and just kind of their extraordinary life. I had an opportunity my second summer working at the park where a local tour operator named Clem, he was looking for just tail guides, just people with first aid and okay people skills to just wrangle people at the back on a set of day trips he was running in this beautiful fjord called Western Brook Pond. For anybody who hasn't seen a picture of Newfoundland but has seen a picture of Norway, it looks a lot like Norway. <laughs> um, it's really beautiful. And so uh, I started tailgunning with him and, and just like learning the ropes of 
what it was like to show people wilderness for the first time. Lots of people came from cities who hadn't gotten out. And I just found that I was really passionate about Newfoundland and I was really passionate about how pristine Gross Morn was and just the history and the culture. Um, so I really took to it. And in the years that followed, I started doing a lot more backpacking off trail. There's a really beautiful traverse route called the Long Range Traverse, which comes up from that fjord and traverses the Long Range Mountains over to the second highest point in Newfoundland, which is called Gross Morn. And it's very remote, no access points other than to pretty rugged trails. And so I, I just started going up with my coworkers and just like navigating across that terrain and just found that I was even more inspired being in mountains that had no trails, that had, I guess, more opportunity to like look around and, and explore. So backpack guiding there was kind of a big jump off point for me. That first summer that I was I was guiding, um, every day I would go out and, and Clem, the, the guy that I first started guiding with, would always say, uh, refer to this beautiful fjord that we've got into as his office. He would always do this little bit about it having not having uh, a roof and it's kind of leaky, but just how much joy it gave him. And, and I think that is something I still resonate with because if I, I haven't really had many jobs where I've had to sit in an office, but those small moments in my life where I have had that, I've recognized the absolute privilege and how awesome it is to be able to share how much I like that with other people. So you're still working as a guide today. Did that um, experience in Gross Morn Park working as a guide kind of draw you in? Yeah, and I think a lot of that is, again, just like having really interesting mentors who made it more important to me to share wilderness with people, especially if you love places, which in some circles may sound counterintuitive because sometimes if you tell people about a place and that place will get overrun. But for me, what I've found in guiding is like you have this like really awesome ability to share somewhere that you love with people and then you allow them to have that space to care about that place that you already love. And then when it comes, if it comes to a point where you need to protect it or you need to have a greater audience care about that space, then you're able to do that. That really resonated with me. So then up until this point, skiing really hasn't been a very central part of your story. Um, but can, can you tell me about your first time on skis? I guess the first time on skis, well, it wasn't downhill, would have been my mom wanted to learn to cross-country ski. And so she went to a pawn shop and got these like, like ancient wooden ones. And we took them kind of, we had some skidoo trails behind our house and we just like kind of hobbled around on them for a long time. And then I, I basically only knew how to cross-country ski until I was pretty well an adult when, how did this story go? I knew an older couple who I thought were really cool <laughs> and their, their names were Bob and Sue and they um, would explore this national park I lived really close to called Grossmore National Park um, on backcountry skis and they just seemed to know everywhere in Newfoundland like they had just been to these extraordinary places that were really hard to get to Newfoundland's quite like foggy and wet and so for me it was really interesting and it was places you couldn't necessarily get on a snowmobile either would be like tight trees or like narrow valleys so and so that first 
here in university. I learned how to ski backcountry, cross-country telemark. <laughs> and that was your first downhill experience. Yeah, and it was not pretty because I didn't actually ski on the resort until like kind of late in that year when my friend was like, you know, like it's it's easier to learn how to telemark if you, <laughs> go, if you go to the hill and you use the groomers. And I was like, oh, cool, yeah. All right, I'll do that. I guess meeting them there in, in that venue um, and hearing about their backcountry skiing, I just thought that was an even greater form of exploring because mm-hmm. it was, again, just like a way so different than I had ever gotten out. There weren't a lot of people in Newfoundland and, you know, it com- comparably still aren't a ton of people in Newfoundland who are out backcountry skiing. Um, I would say there's like a joke in Newfoundland that like things are like 10 years behind <laughs> and I would say... Yeah, that's kind of fair um, in that aspect. But Bob and Sue and their friend group were, were doing a lot of it for a long time in, in Grossmorn and getting to see lots of places that are really unique and and getting to see the park in a different way. And it was pretty inspiring for me mm-hmm. to want to learn how to ski and mm-hmm. yeah, so do that too. To travel through a similar environment that you were already working in, but um, but transformed by winter. Transformed by winter. And then because Newfoundland is so wet, it was just like you could get to places that you like couldn't get to in the summer, which, or it would be like (laughs) not a fun time to get to in the summer. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that was part of it. Um, so yeah, I had that first winter, which was just on the, the backcountry cross country skis. Um, and I really took to it. Like I, I, really started to like it. Um, I took an outdoor pursuits course. I was in my second year university and we did, um, like some skiing foundations in that course. Um, it was just part of my environmental science degree to do that. And, um, so we did some fundamentals in like skate skiing and cross country skiing. So it sounds really funny that that would be, would have been my route. Um, and then we did some telemark skiing in that course as well. So that kind of gave me some better fundamentals for downhill. By the end of the year, I was skiing at the hill pretty normally. Um, and which ski hill was that? Uh, Marble Mountain. Yeah, which is still my favorite hill. <laughs> Shout out to Marble. <laughs> and then the, the following year, I moved to Alaska for an exchange program. Um, I did uh, a year and a half there. And winter comes really early in Alaska. So I got on skis probably in October um, and just was at the hill a lot and practicing groomers, bumps, fundamentals. Uh, but I was like obsessed. So <laughs> like I would, every chance I got, I would be out trying to get better at it, um, trying to progress. And then sort of in probably December, I saw like an ad, I think it was in the rock climbing gym, um, about an, a course, an introduction to mountaineering course that is run by the university as a course because Alaska is like so sick. <laughs> and then one of my friends who was from Alaska was like, oh, that's a super popular course. Like if you want to get into it, you have to like sleep outside the door for registration or you're, you're not going to get in. And so I, I remember it was like minus 40, literally. 
And um, there's just this like lineup of students like sleeping outside of the um, outdoor rec office door for the for the sign to go up for you to register for this mountaineering course. And I got in. And so I spent the next six months in a mountaineering program. Uh, we spent most of our time in the Eastern Alaska range. And I think one of the beauties of that course was that it was so long. The instructor, Frank, had enough time to really like structure people throughout the early semester. He started us out literally on the ski hill and took us through terrain there, just made sure everybody had good enough ski fundamentals to be in a wilderness setting before moving into glaciated terrain. We did a lot of practice with like crevasse rescue and did our first like avalanche awareness courses there. That was kind of where the real backcountry experience like started to form. He really like broke it down and made it accessible for people like me from Newfoundland to like go out into Alaska mountains. So that way by the spring, when we went out onto the glacier trips, we were able to like handle our own. So by the end of the semester, we had a final group project. We had done like um, a couple of smaller objectives as part of the course where like he was the leader and we would learn skills as we went. And then by the end of the semester, we led our own project of a summit from Mount Institute. Then kind of from that course, I had made really good friends with a couple of the guys in the program and then a couple of people from the rock climbing gym. And so we just started going out in the spring on objectives that like fit our background. So like what we had already learned in that course and like just practicing those skills and like getting out into terrain. Um, so then by the end of end of May, I had been in some like extraordinary Eastern Alaska range <laughs> terrain that like, if you had asked me the September before would have been like, like impossible mm -hmm. for me to have been in. Mm -hmm. um, There's huge progression for you in that, in that period. Yeah. Like, like massive, like life altering progression. Yeah. And it's still like a lot of those fundamental skills, a lot of the skills that I have that I use every day skiing, I, I got from that course because like I said, it, it was just so long, the course and so spread out that it's like you had time to digest mm. like all the components of it. Um, and because so much of the people in the course started at a very similar level, it like allowed so much room for exploration and growth, um, which was really cool. So rather than staying out West, as I think a lot of people do, uh, you brought that skill set back with you to Newfoundland. Yeah, I did. It was really hard for me. I, I did have the opportunity to stay longer in Alaska. Like I could have stayed for another year. I decided to go home ultimately. Um, and I, I spent my fall semester in Newfoundland, like pretty bummed if I'm being totally honest. I just had had this like totally transformational experience learning all these new skills and I'm meeting a lot of like-minded people and then I went home and it and it took me a while to like make friends with a similar mindset when I got home I had some already with a similar mindset but at that point I kind of had a very different skill set than I had left with my friends uh in Newfoundland so uh, it was almost like an entry barrier like I was still so new and I didn't have like a a mentor in Newfoundland to bring me into that type of backcountry skiing again. Not that you have anything quite as extreme as Alaska in Newfoundland anyways. So then I was kind of in a 
more leadership position. And I just had to take a lot of learning on myself. And there was a few people around who, um, who had also spent time in other mountain ranges at West and had lots of knowledge and skills. Do you want to talk a little bit about the backcountry ski culture in Newfoundland? Yeah, so it's changing a bit, but most of how people get into backcountry skiing in Newfoundland has been just through mentorship and people being interested as a group. So, you know, I made friends with some people at the ski hill because I had just gotten a job as a professional ski patroller um, at Marble. And uh, I had just made friends with like a couple people there who had a little bit of mentorship from people and we just started tiptoeing out into terrain in Newfoundland and kind of like learning from each other and then one of us would go (laughs) out and like learn a little bit from somebody else maybe at West like one of my friends Scott had his sister and her boyfriend lived at West so he would go at West and do a hut trip and they would come home and he'd have be like oh when you this is how you kick turn and we were like whoa (laughs) like it would be like little things like that um you would keep a small progression And then over two more years of school in Newfoundland, a bunch of myself and my friends just started getting into it. And we were going out on trips. There's a series of huts in Newfoundland. And so we we would go to these huts sometimes and uh, started teaching each other, I guess, with whatever little skills that we had. Um, Most people who had any avalanche training um, got it out west there's one provider um who's great and had started doing it probably this the first or second year that i got home from alaska um started providing it consistently because before that there was probably there wasn't a lot of interest for it is one of the things and then um and i'm not a lot of awareness that like you would need that in newfoundland so um yeah you do. You do need Avalanche training in Newfoundland. <laughs> so. so I understand that Avalanche Canada has kind of just, over the past season, I think, expanded into Newfoundland. Yeah. Um, in a forecasting capacity, they just launched their program last year, uh, which I was super excited to see. So I would say probably back in 2016, 2015, um, there were some smaller efforts just for awareness, um, which was actually run by, I don't know if it was run in the capacity of her job or if it was an additional thing, but there was a, a woman in, in Grossmorn who had an operations course who would come in and do avalanche awareness at high schools because um, there's a lot of snowmobiling in Newfoundland and a lot, honestly, a lot of the terrain that people snowmobile in Newfoundland has potential for avalanches and, um, there's a lot of like high marking culture and that sort of thing. So can you elaborate on what high marking is? So it's um, driving your skidoo up to the top of the mountain and kind of like cutting across the top of the slope and then like coming back down the mountain, which like from me now in my like avalanche professional beginnings here, like it's like a perfect ski cut <laughs> yeah. the slope. So, um, you know, like there had been there have been times like my first avalanche actually happened when I was a kid. Um, but we didn't call it that. Um, we just climbed a pretty steep cut block and the top of the slope let go and the skidoo came rolling down. And, um, my dad and I were both partially buried 
Yeah, and we just chopped it up to like a snow slide. Like it wasn't an avalanche, it was a snow slide. It was quite small. It was probably like a a size one, um, at, at the biggest. But um, yeah, there was just like a lot of that. And so she, Jennifer, um, she did a little bit of that education going into schools, which was great. Um, and that was hosted by Avalanche Canada. And then the idea of having a program in Newfoundland was there for quite some time. But they started running um, info sessions in the evenings in Cornerbrook and in Grossmorn, which are like the two main areas that people would go to ski tour. Mm-hmm. They just have like the best access to um, skiing. And then Andy, who is the still is the AST provider there, um, I believe he was running courses for probably from 2015 or 2016, but it really seemed to pick up. Um, from maybe 2017 onward and now they're quite popular like it it used to be maybe like one or two a season and now I think he runs quite a few so which is great so you can tell that like through having that awareness that more people are seeking the education um and access to it I think I think it's just one of those things about living in the north it's something that has always kind of been there in Newfoundland is like you don't always have the right way to get into things. So like you have to often just seek out your own opportunities and your own learning. Um, but it's nice that there's more opportunities for people at home to, to get out and to like get a really solid education and to be safer when they, when they move into that terrain. Cause that's one of the quirks of backcountry skiing in, in, in the, the era that we're living in. There are a lot of people who want to get into the sport and we're kind of lacking people with a lot of experience, mentors who want to share those skills. Yeah. So I guess one of the things like you're saying about, about mentorship and backcountry skiing is that in the capacity that it currently is existing in, I don't think that there are as many expert people as there are people trying to learn. And so that maybe sometimes there's a bit of imposter syndrome, uh, at least for me sometimes, to try to, as an avid skier, to try and help mentor someone. Um, because it could be just someone who's super avid who is trying to take someone out and, and give them um, some fundamentals. But mentorship is such a process. It takes so long to to gain skills, to be really comfortable and confident in in backcountry ski terrain it's a way more dynamic ecosystem than hiking or backpacking because you just have so many other factors even experts in the sport of backcountry skiing always say we're always learning um and so i think sometimes the amount of time it takes to put in to mentor someone properly is just so vast and hard to wrap your head around but yeah, we need to do it in order to get people continuing the sport, especially for women. And when you pass on information, really, you're just throwing it out there into the void. You have no idea how someone is going to either interpret that information or then apply it later in avalanche terrain. Yeah, exactly. So, And so for me, I feel fortunate to have a lot of my fundamentals in a pretty structured way, which isn't always accessible to people. I think... The imposter syndrome is a pretty common theme, and it seems like a lot of women, especially in the guiding world and, and in the outdoor world, feel the need to quantify their kind of qualification to be out there with um, 
with a high level of training and certification. Yeah, I, I definitely relate to that myself, especially I think as I know more, just like realizing how much there is to learn and that, yeah, it's just like a big weight, I think, to take on. There is so much of a culture of needing mentors and, and needing people to like take people on, even if you're not a total expert, like recognizing where your gaps are and then making sure that whoever you do take out to learn understands that you don't know everything, but here's the spot where you can get them and then maybe you can help pass them to someone or you might be able to teach them how to put on their skins maybe mm -hmm. and ski up the ski hill, but maybe you can't, you know, guide them across a glaciated traverse. You know, mm -hmm. it's like all about understanding where as a recreationalist you can be a mentor and as a friend you can be a mentor in like a safe way. You know, I, I just feel that to be a mentor to someone or to want to share things with people, I I have this, I just want to be able to do it in, in the best way that I can. And so I, I definitely feel that um, it, it's kind of both ways. It's like the more certified I get, the more I recognize my gaps and like where what I don't know. And then sometimes that can make you feel like you're not, you can't teach someone everything, so then you shouldn't teach them anything, which I have that internal battle all the time. But I think at the, the end of the day, especially in sports that that have less women or less representation in many ways, that that's probably the reason maybe you should um, teach what you know and, and then just like identify with the person that you're, you're mentoring where your gaps are mm -hmm. and what you can't teach them. Um, but I think that's a hard thing to overcome and I'm still working on it. <laughs> so where are you at on your ski guide journey right now? So I've, I guess, transitioned from ski patrolling. So I ski patrolled professionally for five years prior to this. Um, and then sort of as a repercussion of being in Alaska, I was like, okay, well, how do I do that for the rest of my life? Um, and so most recently, um, two years ago now, I got my operations level one, which is one of the first steps uh, in Canada towards um, becoming a full ski guide. So I did that um, and then moved through into some of the other courses that the, the Canadian Avalanche Association has to offer, um, including their advanced avalanche search and rescue, um, some of their weather courses. Um, I did an avalanche control blasting course, um, all with the, with the goal of like, professional development um, and so with those courses and my wilderness first aid I've begun to work as a tail guide um, which is sort of helping round out um, some of what I need to do to further my goal of being a ski guide um, a lot of it is just personal time in the mountains that you need to spend but um, also having that industry um, and direct job experience is really important. Um, so yeah, been tail guiding and taking on some practicums at other lodges, um, just as a way to like learn how to guide when it's my turn. And, um, yeah, when I'm totally certified. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where have you been tail guiding? Uh, skiing and cat skiing. So it's really close to Terrace, about, um, 
an hour and a half drive on the highway, followed by um, usually a, a helicopter flight or um, a series of logging roads and then um, a cat to get in a snow cat. Yeah, to get in. So um, fairly close to home comparatively. There's quite a few operations up here in the north and um, yeah, cat skiing is pretty great. So pretty keen on that. <laughs> Yeah, um, and and what kind of terrain do they offer? What kind of uh, what 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 is your what have your days looked like since you've been working there? So, similarly to why I really like terrace and kind of like the backcountry skiing here, as well as like the backcountry skiing in Newfoundland and the backcountry skiing in Alaska, is that SkiNet had been historically using quite a small bit of their tenure and has recently been expanding um, their tenure. Um, they were only using, I think about a third, I might be wrong, but quite a small portion. And then last year we did a lot of, um, just like opening new terrain and, and going out into, um, different areas as well as previously skied areas. Um, so yeah, usually my day will start with, um, a guides meeting. So we will wake up and, um, the lead guide will host it and we'll go over our weather, forecasts are what our nearest neighbors are seeing in terms of there's um in Canada we have a uh something called the InfoX which is a professional um data sharing um that you're taught how to properly use in your professional level courses um and so so we go over that and we use that as a tool to navigate our morning meetings and to um make decisions about what is appropriate terrain and what is appropriate um, just in terms of fun as well, like where got the best snow and is safe for us to ski. Um, so we'll use that as a tool first thing in the morning. Um, yeah, to kind of set the tone for our day. Um, and then once we've done that, uh, I, I set up the cat. So I, I organized the safety gear and I, I put it into the snow cap and then we wait for the guests to finish breakfast and we, we head out and we ski all day, but <laughs> <laughs> the good part. Yeah. A lot of my job right now is, um, you know, it's on the lead guide to make the, the big decisions and then tail guiding is a lot about, um, helping people follow the lead guide and like understand their vision for what we're skiing, understand um, maybe if there's a hazard that he was specifically avoiding, making sure that people like um, understand where that was and don't go into it. Um, and then also being there, like I'm the last one down. So just being there in case something happens, um, which in the mountains and in, in the wilderness in general, you know, it can be quite easy to roll a knee or to pop off a small unexpected slide or, you know, anything of that sort. So, um, yeah, most of my job now is just being at the back and picking up the ski poles that I dropped. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And, uh, with your background kind of specifically concentrated in, um, backcountry ski touring, uh, how have you found the transition into the mechanized world? So I think when I, when I, I still love backcountry ski touring 
the most. Um, you know, over the past, it's been literally 10 years now that I've been backcountry skiing and there's no greater freedom than a ski traverse and like having everything on your back and just going out and knowing that everything that you do on that traverse is under your own power. Um, like it'll always be, I think the thing I love most, but I do really appreciate, um, cat skiing and the way that you can make it more accessible for people to see these really remote places. So it's like ski touring can be quite challenging. Like you, you're not everybody at kind of their baseline fitness maybe can ski tour, like in the capacity that you would be able to ski cat skiing. So it allows you to like really introduce people into terrain that's a little more complex, maybe a little more complicated, um, and manage it a little bit better because you don't have to also manage the expectation of the uphill. So from like a work standpoint, I do really like cat skiing. Um, yeah, because it just, you're able to take people into so much variety of terrain. Um, and you get really, it's like a quicker decision-making process. So even though I'm not in charge of making the decisions now, I sit in the back and pretend I am. <laughs> and um, it's like a really interesting like learning tool to be like, okay, what's changed on this face versus this face since we've seen it. And you can travel so much terrain so quickly. So kind of running the what if scenarios through your head. Yeah. Yeah. So with cat skiing, with tail guiding, you're sometimes you might be taking people out for their first experience of uh, being in a backcountry winter environment. Yeah, like totally happens all the time. Like lots of times, um, people have maybe only skied resort, mm -hmm. so we've had that before. Sometimes you're taking people who have tons of experience out, but I think the really special ones, at least for me, is like somebody like getting their first taste of like powder, and you being like, "Yeah, it's super sick." <laughs> <laughs> is your would you say your brain's wired the same way when you're approaching a day of recreational skiing, say with friends, than it would be for a day of work? Either you know at a backcountry touring lodge where you're doing a practicum, or or your typical day of cat skiing at Skina. I would say. No, it's not the same, but I, I, I feel it changing. So, um, like I said, at the stage of my career that I'm in now, I don't have as much decision-making like in the upfront. There still is decision-making that might happen in an emergency or might happen if there isn't access to that, to that lead guide. Um, but I think when you, when you go out as a recreationalist, everything is on you. Um, even, even when you're in a group of people, it's, you know, it's like really important to formulate your own opinions and then work as a group to make choices. Um, and so also what I'm willing to take somebody into at any given time depends on who you're with and what the day is like and what the experience level is like. Um, but I do feel myself using more of a structured approach to even just like going out with friends when I like think about a day or when I plan a day. And I think part of that is just me trying to develop personally and professionally in the mountains, but um, also maybe just habit, like habits form quick. And I think, you know, you, 
when you use this structured approach every day at work, you just start to use that same approach when you go it recreationally as well. Um, yeah, where I guess the big difference being that when you go with friends, you're not in charge <laughs> necessarily. Yeah, that is the truth. Uh, on that note, though, do you have like a, a decision-making philosophy or guiding mantra that you bring with you into the backcountry uh, when you're going out on your personal time? Yeah. So for me, I find myself to be quite a, like a literal decision maker. So like, I like to have the facts in front of me or as many of the facts as I can gain. So for me, a lot of that starts with the morning preparation, which is definitely something that's evolved over my backcountry ski career. Um, but you know, checking the weather before I go, um, checking my gear, like making sure I know where the, how I'm standing in terms of like all the things that I can prevent and that I can know. So that way when I'm in the field, I can just look at exactly what's in front of me. So, okay, the winds have picked up. I didn't expect them to be in this direction or, um, wow, it really looks like my friend is having a hard time today and we're out quite far maybe we should turn around or, um, or maybe I should check in with them. Or sometimes you'll have similar things happen with, with clients where it's like they're lagging a bit funny. And especially if you're maybe like doing a boot pack to get into a more complicated run or, or something is, um, just having like the literal facts. So like checking in with people, checking in with the weather, being observant, like trying to look around. I find having those facts in front of me helps my decision-making process. So it's a tool that I use to try to keep my own personal feelings and like my objectives out of things is I, I do like a mental check of like, okay, is this actually what's happening or is this how I feel this is happening? And then I also don't dismiss totally like maybe how I feel. I like let that thought happen and then try to like, you know, this all happens often very quick moments, but I'll often let that thought happen and then just see if that, if it has any base to it. So I think decision-making is like a thing that has a lot of human factor in it. And so for me, something I've been trying to practice more is like removing objective and feeling a little bit from it and then finding the facts and then moving forward with the recognition of both, because I, I think the human factor can often be a big part of the, of the decision-making as well. Um, it's just like, how is the group? How are you? It's like a multi-tiered approach for me these days, but that took a long time coming. It, it also took me a long time to be able to understand that sometimes how you feel about something maybe also comes from information that you've taken but maybe not literally processed um a great example of this would be a near miss that I had when probably in my fourth year of backcountry skiing in Newfoundland so one of the things a lot of people don't maybe know about Newfoundland is that there's lots of lots of complex terrain um it's it's in a smaller context so like a lot of the terrain might only be a couple hundred meters high and it's complex so it's not going to be you know like a thousand meters of a run out zone, but you know, it can be quite challenging. And so I was with a group 
um, a friend's just recreating and we had went out into terrain we hadn't been in before. And as we're coming over kind of into this area, I can see the wind actively loading onto the slope um, near where we wanted to ski. So we saw this and we kind of grouped at the bottom and we're like, okay, it's like pretty windy. It's nice skiing over here because this mountain is protecting us from the wind because in Newfoundland, <laughs> the wind can be crazy. Um, so we were like, let's ski in this aspect, but let's ski this mellower shoulder that isn't actively being wind loaded. And so as a group, we started making our way up over into this, into this section uh, of terrain and kind of moving through like the lower part of the terrain, maybe 22 degrees, 20 wasn't super steep. What we were going to ski was like kind of right in the money, maybe around like 30-ish, 28, 30. And we started getting a little bit higher in the slope and we started to notice a bit of like slab coming off, not very thick, like five centimeters thick. And as a group, we were kind of like, okay, like maybe that's enough. Maybe we now start to head left where it's even more protected from the wind. We ski this mellow line down and then we call it and wrap back around to the hut. And so we, we had that discussion. We even had radios that day. So communication was pretty good. And a couple of people were like, oh, maybe we'll go a little bit to the right because it's a little bit steeper. And being kind of, you know, only in my early years, my first four years, I think of backcountry skiing, like I had an opinion on that. I was, I felt bad about it, but I, like I had this like stomach feeling that you sometimes get of being like, it doesn't look great over there. It looks like fun skiing. And then I was like, maybe I just don't have the same risk tolerance as these people. Maybe it's, maybe I'm being a little too oversensitive about this. So I kind of mentioned that I, I didn't feel great about it. And so did another, another person in the group. Um, and they were like, it'll be okay. And so two of them kind of made their way a little bit over. And then um, the rest of the group, we all transitioned and we skied down um, just out of the, just kind of out of the path of, of the mountain. And so we're at the bottom switching over and we look up and we see that the two are still climbing to the right towards the wind loaded section. And it's, it's a bony face. Like it's, we've got some like reverse loading this day. So usually, um, usually that mountain is getting blasted. So all the wind is, all the snow is getting deposited off of it. But this day, all the wind, it was, all the snow was getting deposited onto the slope. So it was thin. You could see like at Towards the top of the mountain, it was like a couple centimeters in sections. It wasn't very thick. Um, and so one of the two had decided to um, call it and turn around. And we had radios, and so we radioed up because the group at the bottom was like, man, that looks really bad. It looks really thin. Um, meanwhile, the other person kept climbing up this pretty rocky like convex <laughs> slope. And so we, we called to him and we, and we said, you know, like, we don't love where you're going. We, we feel that it's going to be a bad call. And sure enough, um, the first turn down the mountain, he blew off a pretty decent size two. I'm going to call it maybe one and a half. Um, ran about... 250 meters and broke the full face of the of the mountain um 
and he was carried down with it and and thankfully was was only partially buried and was able to get himself out but um it was just it was just like a great example of like sometimes in this example I don't think that the people who felt weird about the event I don't feel like maybe we were as assertive as we could have been and I think that's something that sometimes happens with groups of friends particularly if you have sort of a large group so as a result of this um, event I do two things now I, I don't like to go out in groups larger than six I don't like to do it I think that there's too much of a lack of communication and there's too many personalities so that's now part of my decision-making process how many are in the group so it's it's even sometimes more important to me than how much of these people skied because you know if you have a smaller group and you you know that maybe there's some people who haven't skied as much it's easy to control it's like you know you you just go out into different terrain than you would be perhaps so um that's one thing that I kind of gleaned from that um and another would be just communication and like how important that is so just trying to have tools on you to communicate properly like regroups so important and radios and actually like listening to one another um and then being able to take that feeling of ick I don't like that and then dissect it as to like why didn't I like that like what were the things that made me not like that which is now what I call like my literal fact-based kind of debrief with myself when I'm making a decision I'm like is that ick feeling a little bit of nerves maybe because you're stepping out a little or is it or is it warranted it's great to hear you talk about the human factor um, in your decision making I think that's something that's quite widely studied in the avalanche world but as far as I don't know I'll just say the quote-unquote soft skills go I'm starting to recognize myself how um, that's actually a hard skill. <laughs> that's yeah. something that when I think of my own guide ex- experience has played into, I think almost every incident, um, mm-hmm. there was some, some or human element that wasn't being. Yeah. And I, th- I think you sometimes, um, you know, this is something that we, we talk about in like guides meetings and stuff as well is, is just like what could possibly be the human factors today and that sort of thing. So I think it's like a discussion that is sort of new in that context, but I think it's a great, a great conversation to be having. And I think probably we need to have it more in our recreational groups. Um, Just check-ins. Yeah, absolutely. So we've uh, heard a lot about your uh, life in the professional guiding world, but are there any memorable experiences you've had as a recreationalist that you want to highlight? Yeah. So like I was saying, like a big thing for me is that exploratory style, which is like why I started skiing. I actually went back to Alaska to run an ultramarathon my second year and got some more time out in the Eastern Alaska range, which is great. It was great to to like have a year out after gaining some of those skills. Got into Hatcher's Pass, which is a really beautiful pass kind of down around Palmer, Alaska. And yeah, there's a great traverse in those mountains that I was able to get into. Uh, Spent some time in the Chugach range, mostly just on day trips, um, which is near Anchorage. 
And then when I went home to Newfoundland, like it was just like a playground of where will you ski? So, um, spend a lot of time in the blow me down mountains they're called, which definitely live up to their name. Very windy. <laughs> um, they're a series of ophiolites, which is the earth's mantle that was pushed up in the last ice age. So it's Alpine from sea level. So it's really interesting in terms of ski terrain, lots of great skiing in those ranges, did a traverse of those ranges. So we, we started uh, on a lake uh, called Serpentine Lake, and we, and we traversed the Bloomington Range, which to our knowledge, we don't know anybody who had done that on skis before, which was a really, really unique and cool experience that felt really cool to like link up a bunch of places in Newfoundland that I had maybe like run or just had skied parts of before. So that was one of my, my first really exploratory and awesome trips. Yeah. And just did like a, a ton of skiing around there. Cool. Um, so with all of this going on, um, some of it simultaneously, you know, I feel like it's been such a theme for me um, in connecting with people um, that I want to involve in this project, in this podcast, um, that they have all have such diverse interests and skill sets. So I'm curious for you, um, you know, within the, the worlds that you live in, ultra running and ski mountaineering and um, environmental science, how do you make those things fit together or do you have to? Does it just happen naturally? Yeah, um, with ultra running for sure. Um, so I started ultra running as a way to get better at ski mountaineering, <laughs> which was a result of my that first year in Alaska. Um, yeah, I, I basically at, at one point in time had totally left the ski mountaineering world and had totally went into the ultra running world and which now I'm pretty heavily involved in both. Um, but yeah, I, I think that all, all of these realms, so whether it be, um, ultra running or surfing or skiing, you know, they, they have a lot of similar components. So for me with ultra running, a lot of it was about endurance. So I had went out on this big trip, um, up to white princess with a couple of buddies and we, <laughs> we only had 24 hours. Like I had, to, I was a sustainability coordinator at the university. And so I had to be back for an earth day event. <laughs> and so, um, and my other friend had to work until a certain time. So we, we had a very short period of time, um, to do this trip and it was about 24 kilometers each way. And we had like, I think it was something ridiculous, like, like 19 hours on skis to summit mountain uh, which we did we got really close um, we kind of got like we took a, a bit of a wrong turn at a Bergschrun and then kind of got like had to call it because we just didn't have enough time to come back up and around um, yeah just like a small route finding thing anyways I digress uh, it got me into ultra running we got back from that trip and <laughs> all three of us were like like destroyed because we'd just done like 48 kilometers in like 19 hours on skis and I just remember thinking like I want to be able to go out with you know only 20 hours and try to do something awesome if I only have 20 hours or the weather window is only 20 hours like I want to be like in really good shape to like try and go out and and do something so so for me <laughs> 
I started running, um, and yeah, I did a 50 K that fall and then, um, ended up in like sort of accidentally a sponsorship slot for the white mountains 100, which is in Fairbanks. Um, this sponsor wanted to sponsor the person from the furthest away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was in Newfoundland at the time. So, uh, I got the sponsorship slot and I went out and I ran, um, a hundred miles in the white mountains in the winter in Alaska, which was a very big jump from <laughs> 50 kilometers in the summer in Newfoundland. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, after that event, I was like totally hooked on like the idea of ultra running and how tough it makes you mentally and, um, how much terrain you can see, uh, and how many just interesting people you can meet in that community. Um, yeah, and kept doing it for years. Um, ran, got involved with the Destination Trails series of 200 milers and tried the Moab 240, got 160 miles in and was like, <laughs> realized I had 80 miles to go. And I was like, okay, cool. Can't do that. Um, so, but then was like totally defeated by not completing a 200 miler. So I signed up the next year for um, the Bigfoot 200 and finished it. And then I swore off 200 milers, <laughs> um, but I would actually love to do one again. Um, yeah. And then kind of moved into organizing. So I still run events um, for myself, but moved into organizing uh, my own race in Newfoundland called Steep Ultra. And I'm hoping to expand that to the West Coast in the upcoming year um, and to run a, an ultra marathon series here in Terrace and perhaps a third one at some point too, but, um, it's kind of hard to say at this point, they are a huge undertaking, um, from an organizational perspective. So, but I do feel that they all kind of relate together. Like the decision-making you make on a really long trail run is really similar to the type of, um, decision-making you might make towards the end of a big ski day. So that's a wrap on our first episode of Different Aspects Podcast. I want to give a big thank you to Michaela for being my first guest on the podcast, as well as my friends and family who have offered me a lot of support and advice as I embarked on this project. If you like what you hear from Different Aspects so far, you can leave a review or subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts, and that's really going to help me continue to be able to make these episodes. The Different Aspects cover design is by my friend Michaela Seaton, and you can find her online at Alpine Artistry, and our music is by Sunshine Drive Through. So until next time, I hope you get a chance to get outside. Thank you.